This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Mogul, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Ken DeCreasy Dean says that youth ministry is the de facto research and development branch of American Christianity. And she ought to know. She's professor of youth, church, and culture at Princeton Theological Seminary, and she's my guest today for Thinking in Public. Professor Dean, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Kenda, you have been a part of the National Study of Youth and Religion, and in my estimation, that's one of the most important research projects that American Christianity has really had to confront over the last uh, several generations and, and, and decades. Kind of summarize for us, if you will, what that's all about. Well, the National Study of Youth and Religion, um, it certainly is the biggest um, study we've had to confront. And um, Christian Smith, as you know, is the um, principal investigator of that. So he coordinated his colleagues from all over the country to um, interview 3,300 kids and their parents. And it's longitudinal, which is, in my mind, really where the pay dirt is on that study, in that um, Chris is going back to the same sample every five years and, you know, just checking in to see what's going on with, in terms of their um, relationship to faith and their relationship to churches and how that's influencing other parts of their lives. I think there are two tremendous gains from this study, and the first is its explicit purpose, which is to look into the religious and spiritual lives of teenagers and now young adults, Mm-hmm. and adults uh, in the third stage moving into uh, uh, more mature adulthood. But the second great gain has been that it's given us some conceptual handles. Uh, sociologists like Peter Berger, Robert Bella, Robert Wethnow have mm-hmm. for years kind of given us some handles to, to describe mm-hmm. what we're looking at. But the great gain in this has been the indictment that comes with the three words moralistic therapeutic <laughs> deism, because we've all sensed that something has gone shallow in American Christianity, and you hit that head on. Well, that's true. I mean, I it's funny because um, Chris and I kind of argued about that term. I'm like, nobody will be able to remember that term, Chris. You've got to come up with something that's a little easier to remember. And But it was so descriptive that people did, in fact, um, recognize it right away. That um, in, and, and as you know, basically what moralistic therapeutic deism, which is just a $10 word or phrase that talks about religion as a way to help you um, be nice and feel good about yourself, and otherwise God pretty much stays out of the way. And that that turns out to be the de facto, kind of the default religious position of most American teenagers. And what's um, really telling about that is that because of the unbelievable consistency between teenagers and what their parents' faith is, um, then the conclusion was made that it, in fact, is the default religion of American churches as well. In your book, and it's a a very important book entitled Almost Christian, if if nothing else, the title's really important, the subtitle, What the Faith of Our Teenagers is Telling the American Church, you point out that this moralistic therapeutic deism is is really a substitute, a false Christianity, a parasitical reality. You define it this way. You say it's an adherence to a do-good, feel-good spirituality that has little to do with the triune God of Christian tradition and even less to do with loving Jesus Christ enough to follow him into the world. Right, and I guess I would want to emphasize that I don't think that's because of, you know, bad intentions or anything. Um, the the bottom line is, and I'm not even sure I would say it's even... A, I don't think it's an adequate Christianity. I'm not even sure. There's a way you could call it a false Christianity, but I, I, I 
am reluctant to go that far with it because the people who are, many people who are espousing this are people who are trying to live their lives as Christians. But unfortunately, what they understand as Christianity or what we have been able to communicate as Christianity is such a watered-down version of um, anything that people who, <laughs> if you read if you read the Bible about who Jesus is, he's hard to recognize in something that's that shallow. So it's very difficult to line those two things up together. But it's not out of an, an a, a, a ill-intentioned um, kind of Christianity or anything like that. A lot of people who are, you know, card-carrying, moralistic, therapeutic deists are people we go to church with. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, there are, mo- there are days when I fall in that category. I try not to, but, you know, it's, it's a very natural impulse for humans to want to accommodate their religious faith to whatever the dominant cultural mores are, of the day are. And that's pretty much our version of it. Yeah, I think about many of the kinds of uh, predictions that were made, especially back in the 1960s, and uh, had an interesting conversation with Peter Berger on this program in, mm. in, in the first season, in which I asked him to revisit the whole idea of secularization. Mm-hmm. And, and as he said, it turned out that the prophets of hard secularity were basically wrong. Uh, right. You know, you look at right. teenagers, they're not alienated from religion. They think, as you say, it's kind of a nice thing. On the other hand, he said, what we have to now give attention to is secularization from within, and that is basically that the belief system is actually secularized in ways that, uh, without a pretty careful biblical and theological understanding, you might just miss altogether. Yeah, that's probably, uh, I, I think that might be accurate. The, um, I, I think what has happened is that we've become pretty... Um, unattached to a lot of our own the, our own theologies, our own understanding of Christian story. I, now, here's a, here's a place where I think it's possible to critique the national study of youth and religion. People of faith know that religion is not just what you believe, it's what you desire, it's who you are, it's identity, it's, you know, affect, it's a lot of things, it's not just what you think. And it's easy for people to look at the national study of religion and youth and religion and say, oh, well, if they don't believe X, Y, and Z, then they're not you know, they don't get it. And it's a lot more complex than that. But having said that, it is true that there is very little um, recognition of a connection between, you know, what the early church would have understood as, you know, theological teaching and the identity that people are um, calling Christian, even in American pulpits. In fact, I talked to the teenagers in the church that I attended um, after this, the first release of some of these findings came out. It wasn't published yet, but I did some focus groups of the kids in my own congregation. And I just sort of ran by the principles of moralistic therapeutic deism to say, what do you think about this? Is this, is this what you come to church for? And uh, one of the kids said, well, sure, that's what, that's what Dave preaches from the pulpit. <laughs> and, you yeah. know, Dave would be horrified to think that's what they heard. Um, but that, in fact, was the way they interpreted it. It because there, there's just not a lot of help in, you know, handing on, translating the faith between, you know, what kids hear in church and how it gets interp- interpreted in their own lives. You know, sometime back, uh, the idea of the culture of civility was an issue of, of, of a great deal of interest among American historians right, and how that right. developed. And it, as I was reading your book, it, it struck me, in fact, one of your sections, uh, you asked the question, which is, I guess, kind of obvious to adolescents listening to people in church, what's wrong with being nice? Right. <laughs> that, that is what we say. It's what we tell them in the sandbox and in the crib, and, and that's pretty much what we tell them in the seventh and eighth grades as well. Yeah. 
And I, and I want to go on record as saying I think being nice is a good thing. Yes. Um, but it's not the same thing as being a Christian. Um, I think, you know, the bottom line is, you know, Jesus, he might have been a nice guy, and I kind of assume that he may have, you know, lived his life that way. But, you know, the fact is compassion and um, justice and um, suffering love, uh, that goes way, way beyond being nice. And so um, what Christians are called to be is much more than um, the benign kind of safe niceness, that is the way we understand the phrase. And the word nice actually comes from a medieval word, which meant foolishness. And if you look at it that way, then, well, okay, maybe Christians are nice in the sense that we're fools for Christ, but that's not the way we use it in common language. Exactly. Uh, you cite in your book the fact that both George Whitfield and John Wesley preached sermons entitled The Almost Christian, taken, of course, from <laughs> Acts 26, 28, Almost Thou Persuadest Me to Be a Christian, as King Agrippa spoke to Paul. And the title of your book is Almost Christian. Why? Well, what happened was, as I was going through um, all of these interviews, was it became clear that this was not a youth ministry issue, this was a church issue. And um, the reality is, there aren't very many problems that the church is dealing with now that we haven't always had to deal with in some way, shape, or form. And the way, I'm a Methodist, so I'm drawn to um, a Wesleyan way of looking at the world, and the way Wesley understood almost Christian, and he himself, I love the humility of this, he himself said, look, for most of my life, I'm in this category. And, you know, where I'm basically going through, I'm living out what I understand to be the teachings of the Church, but I'm not really sold out in love to either Jesus or my neighbor. And it's that dimension of love that was the um, difference between an almost Christian and what Wesley called an altogether Christian, um, as somebody who lives their life in perfect love, at least as perfect as is possible, um, this side of the grave. So, you know, this was the distinction for him, and I tend to adopt that, you know, worldview, I suppose, in terms of my own way of parsing out the Church. Well, to, to be honest, uh, having read so much material from this study and uh, the, both of the volumes that came out by Christian Smith and his associates, I, I have to tell you, I think one of the strengths of your book in particular is how you are able to distill some of this research into very pungent, uh, even threatening language uh, for those of us <laughs> who are church leaders that, that really uh, should get our attention. For instance, you write this, the predicament described in this book, namely that American young people are unwittingly being formed into an imposter faith that poses as Christianity, you then define, uh, but that in fact lacks the holy desire and missional clarity necessary for Christian discipleship. So that's that, that's the predicament. Uh, that's very, uh, well, clearly, candidly stated there. Well, and the the issue is discipleship, right? It's, it's not just saying that you're a Christian, which of course most kids do say, even even in our culture at large, there's still enough residual Christian, Christian language out there that 75% of the kids in the study self-identified as being Christian. Now, when you talk to them, that didn't mean that they were doing anything about their lives or that they really even understood much about it, but that's the way they think of themselves. So there's, there, there's some residual sense that, yeah, being a Christian isn't, isn't you know, something that I'm against being, but living my life as a disciple is something else again. Intentionally saying, yeah, I'm going to live in a way that tries to follow the path of Jesus. I'm going to 
follow him into the world. I'm going to try to be with the people that he was with. I'm going to try to, you know, live in the same way that he lived. Well, that's a pretty countercultural way to live, given our consumer culture that we have right now. So um, to become a disciple is a completely different thing than self-identifying as a Christian, I think. No, that this, doesn't mean that you're not. Yeah. That doesn't mean, I, see, this is where I get in trouble, right, with the media, because I don't really mean that you're a fake Christian. I just mean that maybe you're not altogether going, you're not going as far as Christ really calls us to go. Well, this is a safe place to have this conversation, and uh, <laughs> a safe place to use the language you deploy in your book. And, and, and I really do appreciate it, quite frankly, because I think most people, most uh, intelligent American Christians know that something's gone horribly wrong. And uh, we're, we're going to get, in, in a few minutes, we're going to get to the worst part of all of this, and that is that it's our fault. But let's, let's yeah. hold that thought for just a moment. <laughs> okay. And, and, and look at a couple of the other descriptive things that, that you deploy here. You cite sociologist Tim Clydesdale, who, who speaks to the faith of most American adolescents as what he calls semi-religious. And, and right. then, I don't know if you coined the word, but if you didn't, uh, you certainly deserve credit for putting it here before us. The, the term Christian-ish, you're discovering that the actual Christian experience uh, or the actual spiritual experience of many of these young people, when they think of Christianity, isn't Christian so much as it's Christian-ish. Yeah, that's a that's a phrase I actually got from Anne Lamott, but, um, and I do think that it's true that there's kind of the whiff of Christianity about a lot of things that churches do, but when you really probe it, it's it's, it gets harder and harder to distinguish between, you know, what churches are doing in the name of following Christ and the triune God and what churches are doing in the name of good citizenship or being, um, you know, kind and in ways that they don't always, the way I talk, tell my kids, you know, you need to say who you work for. <laughs> you know, At some point, it matters that, you know, we work for Jesus Christ and we don't necessarily work for you know, um, the Parks and Recreation uh, Committee, which there's nothing wrong with the Parks and Recreation Committee, but that's not who employs us as Christian disciples. Yeah, very well said. Um, you, you cite in your book early on the fact that this is a problem at multiple levels. You also are very careful to make clear that Christianity is more than a belief system, but it, it's never, of course, less than that. Correct. And uh, you describe this as a theological problem, and I appreciated that. Uh, spell that out a little bit for us in terms of how this is, first of all, a theological problem. Right. Um, well, as you know, I, I think that there's a tendency for for can-do Americans especially to look at a problem and say, oh, wow, well, the problem is, uh, is there's a methodology that we need to fix. If we, if we do this better or if we do this in a different way, then the you know the problem will take care of itself, and I think that's kind of part of our you know national ethos that we're can-do fix-it people. But the truth of the matter is, theologically, there's a lot going on with moralistic therapeutic deism. I mean, we could become really excellent moralistic therapeutic deists, and it wouldn't solve the problem. In fact, it would conceivably make the problem worse. So um, theologically, I think it means a, it, that to me, theology is an identity issue for Christians, right? We are here because we are, you know, trying to live out the words of God. And so to be clear about connecting, all right, what is the word of God that I, as I understand it, that I, that is going to inform 
not only my own personal life, but the life of this community that I'm identifying with as the church and the way I enter the world. And there's a theological imagination that's just really impoverished right now among people, you know, across um, Christianity, I think. Um, We often either define ourselves either with or against the way the media portrays Christians. Um, and the media is not so interested in the, the- theological roots of our tradition. Um, and so, you know, we fall right into it. We, we hear the messages people say about us, and we start to believe the press releases. And therefore, we live out of those instead of out of um, the gospel that, as we have interpreted it in our particular faith communities. The concept of moralistic therapeutic deism gives us a handle in order to understand what most of us have perceived is, uh, well, a shallowness in American Christianity. A shallowness that is not just found in this corner or that, but if we're really honest, is more pervasive throughout all of American Christianity and even a good deal of evangelical Christianity. I think one of the most important issues we have here is the fact that this gives us a conceptual understanding that makes it even more difficult for us to deny this reality. It makes us even more responsible to think about what's behind it and what we should do about it. Identifying the problem as moralistic therapeutic deism is a necessary first step. But taking a step back from that, it's also important to ask how this happened. In her book, Almost Christian, What the Faith of Our Teenagers is Telling the American Church, Kenda Creasy Dean of Princeton Theological Seminary tells us that that answer is also something that the church really needs to understand. It didn't start with the adolescents. It starts with their parents. Kenda, how did you come up with this? How did you trace the, uh, the problem of moralistic therapeutic deism from the teenagers back to their parents? Yeah, that's a great question, and I, I think it really is in the data itself in the National Study of Youth and Religion, because what one of the most surprising things to sociologists in the study was the amazing consistency between the um, religious beliefs and practices and attitudes that were demonstrated by the teenagers in the study and how closely they conformed to those that were expressed by their parents. And so what that meant was, you know, whatever the faith that we were hearing from the teenagers was in some ways echoing the faith that was being um, practiced at home. And so, you know, I think there's a way to also say that, look, parents are not all that, you know, conscious a lot of the time about the um, faith that they're, you know, handing on to their kids. So what that means, and Christian communities have to take responsibility, too, because we are also trying to say that, look, the adults that are surrounding kids' lives are those that are supposed to be handing on Christian tradition to the next generation, and if this is what we're handing on, then we have to take responsibility for that. You know, the problem of moralism is writ large across uh, Christianity, and for that matter, Christian history. Uh, There are very serious moral claims, moral principles, and moral teachings in the Christian faith, but they are not in themselves the gospel. And uh, one of the right. temptations, I think, that comes especially uh, to parents and uh, with their children and teenagers is to substitute the gospel 
with moralism because moralism is something that that seems to get so immediately to what we're concerned about, and that is that our children turn out to be well-rounded, decent human beings. Right. <laughs> but they can be decent human beings. As a matter of fact, one of the most reassuring things in, in the, this massive study is that the vast majority of these kids want to be decent human beings. They do. That's they just do. not what the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ has as its first concern. Well, and the way we understand decency also um, uh, plays into that. If churches are going to define being a Christian in the same way we understand being a decent, you know, human being in your school or in your government or whatever, um, then there's very little reason. First of all, there's no reason to go to church. You know why? You know, it's it's replicating the, what the messages are getting other places. Um, it's but it's also a confusing um, way to understand what our goals are in terms of human decency. To be to be a decent citizen may or may not be quite the same thing as being, you know, human in the sense of we are created in the image of God, and therefore our humanity is that which is, you know, in relationship to God. Uh, that's, not, that's not part of the equation that you get outside of the Christian community. Charles Wesley is my favorite uh, hymn writer. And so many of his hymns from your own tradition are so rich in concern for the love of God. And right. you point out that what's missing, actually, perhaps most importantly, theologically, in terms of the lives of these young people, these Christian-ish young people that we desperately want to be Christians, is that they do not understand the love of God for them and, and, and their love of Christ in such a way that it becomes an enduring discipleship. Yeah, and I think um, what's really um, sad about that is the way that Christianity gets communicated a lot of times in churches and in families is as the moral belief system that you talk about rather than as, this is someone I love. This is who I love. I love this person so much that I'm going you know, to follow this person around. I'm going to you know, align my life with what, what this person is interested in. And you do that you know, in a human relationship, too, but when you take that rela- that language and you apply it to Christ, it describes very well what the life of dis- discipleship is. And what I see a lot in churches, I've, I've been a pastor in churches where this is true, and I probably fell into it myself, is that we tend to want to surround kids with people who know a lot about Christianity and who, you know, will be able to answer all of teenagers' questions. That's the big, most common thing I hear from parents and from adults who are scared to volunteer. It's like, what if I don't know enough? The fact of the matter is, kids are not persuaded by people who know a lot or who don't know a lot. It's, it's a helpful thing, but what happens is what they really want is to know who you love and why you love this person. What about this this Jesus, and what about this triune God is so compelling that you're willing to give, you're willing to give a huge portion of your income every single month to this organization that's trying to live out the gospel. What is that all about? And why do you love something enough that you would give your life, your money, your family, your, your vocation um, to this person? And that's a very different thing than passing on stuff you know about you know, Christianity. And I do think they're related because the example that I comes to my mind, which will be familiar with anybody who's ever had a junior high kid, um, kids learn best what they love the most. And 
they learn it in that order. They love some, They fall in love with a band first, and then they go learn everything there is about it. They don't decide first intellectually. I think I'm going to like this music, therefore I'm going to go study this band. It goes the other. It, it's the other way around. So, to have young people, you know, just recognize that there's this deep love for Christ and this love for other people that is what is the animus behind our faith will, in fact, lead to a much more informed faith than we currently have. There are several paragraphs that I wish I could just read in toto here from your book, but I want to refer to one that's that's toward the end of the book where you said several things that I I think really bear our, our, uh, our close attention here. You say this, it may be that young people are not the religious relativists we make them out to be. It may be simply that Christianity, or what passes for Christianity as teenagers see us practice it, does not merit a primary commitment. It may be that the only time young people see churches point to Christ's exclusive claims is when we raise the flag on on Jesus to claim him for ourselves, like Antarctica for the Queen, end quote. That's a pretty powerful paragraph. Uh, First of all, just what you say here about the fact that Maybe what they see from us, and, and the indictment in your language here is so direct, is that Christianity does not merit a primary commitment. Well, I, I guess it is a strong claim, but it is, it's the truth from where I sit, I suppose. So well, I I'm in agreement with you. Young people are more likely to um, recognize uh, Christianity as being significant if we don't treat it like an extracurricular activity. You know, we you, kids are pretty smart. They understand the difference between something that's kind of tacked on at the end of the week and something that organizes your life. And they, they're, you know, they're looking for something to organize their life around, too. And if you organize your life around, I don't know, your job, or um, sometimes we even organize our lives around ourselves in terms of our families, you know, we don't... <laughs> The classic example, you don't go to church because it's family time, you know. And um, so we've got all these little idols that we hold up as being ultimate. Well, kids are pretty quick to realize those aren't quite so ultimate. as they, And so they start looking for something that's worthy of an ultimate commitment. Um, usually, I think teenagers tend to translate that into a love relationship with somebody else. And that is very dangerous because, of course, there's no, certainly there's no teenage relationship that can withstand that kind of pressure. And I think, actually, there's no human relationship that can withstand it. I think that that is the province of the divine relationship with us, is that it'll, the divine relationship with us will stick um, in ways that human relationships just can't. So there's something about us that's wired to look for that, and... Um, kids know pretty fast if their parents are treating religion as something that is worthy of organizing their lives around or whether it's just, oh, well, yeah, it's, an, it's something else that we do. I'm hoping we can turn sort of a corner here in terms of, of asking what we can do. And you, you point out several very important things in the research and, and in your writing. But I want to use as our hinge here the, the important role that parents play, because uh, I think a lot of the uh, of the assumption out there in the part of, uh, of Christian leaders, and especially Christian parents, is that they have uh, less impact on their teenagers than you demonstrate they have. As a matter of fact, yeah, that's true. it is yeah, really right. clear from your research that parents have an awesome impact upon their teenagers. And as a matter of fact, you have a formula in your book, you know, what you are is what you get. Mm-hmm. What you are as that's parents true. is what your children are likely to be. 
Well, I mean, unless you go through a lot of therapy and try hard not to become like your parents, you do tend to become like them. And um, it's not it's not foolproof, but it's the tendency that uh, human beings have is to become like those who raise them. And so um, I do think parents underestimate the importance of their faith in terms of the way their kids receive it. It's so much, I'll tell you what, one of the best reasons for volunteering to work with young people in anything is because they're not your kids. You're so much more, you can, you, you have a long view on other people's kids that you just don't have on your own. And so, um, I do think that it's helpful for us to be able to step back and say, you know, just because we're not seeing a lot of fruit from the fact that we're going to church now, doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It's it's definitely mattering. And in fact, the longitudinal um, research that Chris Smith has done shows that the most likely reason for somebody's faith to make the transition from high school into the emerging adult years is the religious devotion of parents while those children are teenagers. You know, there's one and other thing I he don't says. Think he didn't obviously yeah. look at the childhood years. Those are important, too. But the bottom line is most parents are going to say, oh, my gosh, I'm going to church. My kids don't care. They're sleeping in or they're grumpy about going. or what. This obviously is making no difference. And I want to say, you know what? Hold on. God's got a longer view than you do, and your faithfulness makes an enormous difference. Um, oh, it's but interesting it's you, you cite that. It's easier to do that with yeah. other people's kids than with your own. Well, it's very interesting you cite that, and I don't want to leave it for just a moment because uh, in, in the second book in that great project, Chris Smith and his associates uh, produced the book Souls in Transition The Religious and Spiritual Eyes of Emerging Adults. And uh, when I talked to Chris Smith and when I wrote about that book, one of the things that I wanted to accentuate is, is what he says is that after parents, the one thing that, that, uh, that corresponded to the more successful transition to uh, to, uh, to a, a more mature Christianity on the part of these young people was a relationship with a significant adult, not a parent. Correct. And, you know, that really flagged my attention because that, that is something that congregations obviously need to, to give more attention to, more intentionality to. Well, absolutely. And what's, in addition to that, for all of the kids out there whose parents aren't religious or whose parents don't, you know— really invest in their religious formation. The investment of a Christian community, the adults in a Christian community, on behalf of young people, it helps fill in the gap. And so it's what, it, you know, when you talk to seminarians, this is what I do for because I teach at a seminary, the number of people who are in seminary, I wouldn't want to give you a percentage, but clearly the majority of them come because of the interest shown by a significant adult, and that interest is often not the parent. Um, in fact, in some ways, you need somebody that's not the parent to kind of be the reality check. Your parents are supposed to believe in you, right? But if somebody else believes in you, then it really counts. No, I think that and, makes perfect um, sense. So uh, yeah, there's a yeah. huge role, huge role. I love, um, this is just a practical thing that Mark DeVries from Youth Ministry Architects recommends, and that is instead of thinking about the um, leader-student ratio as how, you know, we need to have one leader for every five kids, his, his formula t- turns that around, and he says, you know what, you need to surround every kid with five adults. And five adults of faith who will, in some way, as a teacher, maybe as a piano instructor, as a baseball coach, some way, 
be a reminder to that young person, yeah, I'm part of a Christian community. I follow Jesus. This is what it looks like to be an adult of faith. In uh, in the real estate world, we have buyer's remorse. Uh, in the publishing <laughs> yeah. world, we have author's remorse. Every book gets finished before the author wants to let it go. Uh, what well, re- I'm what so rem- glad to hear you yeah. say that out loud, because that is so true in my heart, but I never knew that was a real thing. Oh, I think it's a real thing. And I just want to ask you, what remains on the table, you think, for, for uh, future consideration here? Well, that's thank you for asking that, because that's obviously something I've spent a lot of this past year thinking about. Um, I, the one, the one, there are a couple of things that are in the book and one thing that's not in the book. The one thing that's in the book that I wish I could have finessed or I had the foresight to finesse more um, I get hit on being too hard on parents. And I really do, I mean, I am a parent, right? So I really do think parents are trying to do the best they can. And we don't have very good equipment. We don't have very good theology. We don't have a lot of support, even from our faith communities, in raising our kids. So it's, um, it's a complex problem that's shared by the whole community, and I don't really mean to come down on parents as hard as some people have read that book as being. Um, and similarly, I mentioned this earlier, I, I think that it's probably a fair thing to look at dimensions of Christianity that go beyond belief um, in terms of, you know, what do you want in life? What are your desires? Who, who, do, you, who do you want to follow as, as well as what do you believe? I think those are fair critiques that could be teased out. But the other thing that is of interest to me just as a researcher is I don't think the role of religious experience is really unpacked in um, these studies, and that's largely because Chris is a sociologist. That's not what that's not where sociologists are really right. all that interested. But he does note in both the souls um, in soul searching and souls in transition that religious experience, a, a, an experience of the holy of God, which is defined in a pretty narrow way in the study, but is, has an unbelievably powerful effect in terms of helping people who wouldn't normally fit the pattern of having faith um, come to faith. And that says to me that, you know, you can't really control for religious experience, and yet churches have a great uh, investment in recognizing that we are part of a holy mystery, and there is something that goes on when Christians gather in worship and when Christians gather, you know, to serve others that is qualitatively different um, than what we experience in other parts of our lives. And that, I think that is worth exploring more. There's a lot more mystery to this than we give credit, and that mystery seems to be pretty darn powerful in helping young people, you know, ascertain Christ's call in their lives. One thing becomes very clear, both in the book and in this conversation, and that is that Professor Kenda Creasy-Dean loves young people. And she is, of course, also a parent. And I can just imagine, Kenda, that your classroom has to be a very exciting place to be. And I want to thank you so much for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Well, thank you so much for having me, and blessings on the school year. (laughs) Thank you so much. One of the most important contributions a book can make is to reshape the discussion. I think that's exactly what Kenda Creasy-Dean has done in her book, Almost Christian. We're talking about the faith of American adolescents 
and the theological responsibility of the Christian church in different terms than had we not read this book and encountered this massive study of young people and their spirituality. We now know a great deal looking backwards at where they get these understandings from their parents and where we go from here, which is the creation of authentic Christian congregations that take these issues seriously and make certain that what their young people are getting from the church as well as from their parents can't be reduced to just moralistic therapeutic deism. Several years ago, I was speaking to a group of evangelical youth ministers, and, uh, well, I offended them. I didn't intend to, but nonetheless, they felt offended when I told them that what most American evangelical young people tell us they're getting from the experience they had in church programming in their adolescence is basically a two-point message. Number one, love Jesus, and number two, don't have sex until you're married. Now, both of those things are really important. But they're important within the context of the totality of Christian truth. They're, they're mostly important within the context of the Christian gospel and within a life of discipleship and following Christ to the glory of God. This is what's missing from the horizon of so many American teenagers, and in particular, the teenagers, adolescents, and young adults that populate so many of our evangelical churches. But as this study has made very, very clear, it's not enough just to look at the data coming from this survey and realize that, that we really do have a theological crisis when it comes to America's Christian young people. We also have a crisis when it comes to their parents and to the congregations of which they are a part. And that problem starts as a theological problem. There's great gain in this. As we've said, that category, this conceptual tool of moralistic therapeutic deism is really, really helpful. And one of the things that we as Christians need to understand is that American culture has created a context in which that's the natural kind of, of, of conception of Christianity that the culture would allow and foster and, uh, and encourage coming from our churches. In, in other words, the culture at large is not threatened by the message of moralistic therapeutic deism. If anything, the, if we're looking for the secular culture to think that the church is, is presenting a positive message— and we were going to try to conform it to the contemporary expectations of, of postmodern American society, we couldn't come up with anything better than this. But moralistic therapeutic deism did not emerge from a Christian consultation in which church leaders got together and said, how can we minimize the faith down to something that will not offend a secular culture? Moralistic therapeutic deism came about because there is a certain temptation which appears very clearly when we look at the church in historical perspective. And that is a temptation to abandon the gospel for moralism. This is something that is sometimes difficult to talk about. It's difficult to talk about with youth ministers, many of whom are hard-pressed and trying to do a very good job. It's hard to talk about with parents who, after all, understand a good deal of their parenting, not only from the church, but from, well, their parents. But the reality is that, is that moralism is a danger that's very close at hand. Now, let's be careful with our terms here. Moralism is not a problem because it holds up moral expectations. That is not the problem. The problem is that moralism is a false gospel that tells children, adolescents, and for that matter, adults of any age, that what God wants from you first and foremost is that you behave. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ does come with moral commands and moral expectations, a life of discipleship and following Christ but the way into the gospel is not by behaving, but by recognizing that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that we are in desperate need of what we cannot do, which is behave, 
we must indeed recognize that all of our righteousness indeed comes up so infinitely short of God's righteousness that the only righteousness that can save us is one that comes from another. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. God did for us in Christ what we are unable to do for ourselves. Moralism is nonetheless a very tempting substitute gospel because, well, first of all, there's the urgency of parenting. One of the first things parents want of their children is that they behave. We, we discipline them when they misbehave, we reward them and encourage them when they do behave, and they quickly understand that the way to earn our pleasure, our favor, is by behaving. But of course, the reality is we love them even when they misbehave. We loved them before they existed. And that's just a model in a very finite form of how it is that God is with his human creatures. He loves us in spite of our disobedience. He doesn't love our sin, but he loves us in spite of our sin. And he loves us enough that he indeed glorifies himself by saving sinners. He does so, of course, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't reduce any of this to behave. And furthermore, when you look at moralistic therapeutic deism, you understand that the bent of American culture toward the therapeutic is also very close at hand for the church. It's very tempting for us to substitute theological categories with these therapeutic categories. To tell people that what's wrong with them is not so much the problem of sin, as the Bible describes it, but, well, something that could be described as a syndrome or some kind of complex, some kind of therapeutic problem that can be answered with a therapeutic answer. These young people are getting the message. They hear the moralistic message loudly and clearly. They hear the therapeutic message just about as clearly. And when it comes to deism, well, that's an indictment of just how little theology is actually being communicated to young people. One is really frightening in this, of course, and indeed haunting to us, is that the reason so many of these young people know so little about Christianity is not only because they're not taught, but because those who could teach them also know so little about authentic biblical Christianity. So what's the way out of this? Well, let's first of all consider the good news. It's good news in the volumes of Christian Smith as he looks at the meta-project of this giant study and survey. It's good news in the work of Kenda Creasy Dean and her book Almost Christian, and that is that parents are the most determinative influence on their children. That's good news. It's good news that, by the way, the Scripture should tell us to expect. What you are is what you get. I love that formula in the book Almost Christian. That's a word that parents really need to hear. What we are is what our children are going to get in terms of the understanding of the faith, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of the life of discipleship. But the good news is also that parents in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ are not and should not be alone. The congregation of Christians, the, the local body of Christ, should be a Christian fellowship, a community of faith, under the mutual submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that encourages every single part of that church, including the children and teenagers of that church, to follow Christ in faithfulness. Of course, that is, first of all, a gospel message. We desperately want children and young people, teenagers and young adults, to come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and then to follow him as faithful disciples. There are some congregational gifts to that. It turns out that these gifts are absolutely essential. As I mentioned, Christian Smith in his research said that when he talked to young adults, one of the things that came most clearly in focus was the fact that those who made the successful transition in terms of Christian discipleship from childhood to adolescence to young adulthood or emerging adulthood, as he calls it, is the fact that they had, first of all, parents who had such an influence on them, and then, very significantly, some other adult or adults in the congregation. 
that invested in them, taught them, believed in them, and modeled discipleship for them, faith and conviction for them. Now, that's where churches really need to take a lot of attention here and recognize that we can't just franchise out youth ministry. And youth pastors will be the very first to tell us that. You can't just make it a department of the church. You can't just make it a program or a division. In fact, I love what Kenda Creasy Dean says when she points out that what churches want to do in facing a crisis is come up with bigger and better programs. But as she said, just doing better at communicating moralistic therapeutic deism is hardly the answer. Authentic biblical Christianity and authentic biblical congregations, well, that's what, we, that's what we're looking for. That's what we hope for. And now we know why the stakes are even higher than we may have thought. Lacking those congregations, lacking authenticity, lacking a clear focus on the gospel, lacking a clear theological vision for, first of all, this is a theological problem. Minimizing conviction, confusing the message, well, all of this leads to the kind of confusion that is in the indictment of this book. The fact that many young people are basically becoming not Christians, but Christian-ish. They're not repelled by the gospel as much as they're just, well, unknowledgeable about the gospel. It's also a matter that comes down to the title of this book, Almost Christian. Let's be really honest. We do not have as our assignment. We do not have on our hearts as a burning concern the tremendous desire and vision that the young people in our churches will become almost Christian. We desperately want them to become faithful believers, followers, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hopefully, this conversation will help us think some very, very important, healthy, and necessary thoughts to get us further along the road to making that happen. Thanks again to my guest, Professor Kenda Creasy-Dean, for joining me today. You can hear Thinking in Public on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher allows you to listen to Thinking in Public directly from your iPhone, Android phone, BlackBerry, or Palm phone. Download it today for free at stitcher.com or at your local app store. Before signing off, I want to invite you to join me for an exciting conference taking place on the campus of Southern Seminary, November 4 through 5. Reinvent, a youth and family ministry conference, will equip you to become more effective in leading transformational youth and family ministries in the local church. For more information, visit sbts.edu. Thanks for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.